So we are in the book of Ephesians. And I'm very excited about, um, it seems that the responses that I'm getting from all of you is the fact that you're seeing things maybe that you've never seen before. You're understanding things you've never seen before. You're growing. It's challenging your thinking about God, and that is great. It's everything that you want the Scriptures to do. It's amazing how many times we can surround ourselves with a way of thinking. But when we get alone with the Scriptures, or we're able to just say, God, what do you have to say on this matter? It really opens up. Now, of course, you understand that where you're at right now is Grace Bible Church. And Grace is probably the greatest emphasis and the most misunderstood emphasis about God that I've ever seen in my life. And I'm hoping that today we'll be able to clear some of that up because the question I want us to answer is, is why does God do gracious things? Why in the world? I mean, pause for a second, okay? And if you have to close your eyes just to get there, it's okay. I know me. I'm thankful there's parts about me that you don't know. I'm so thankful there's things about Jay that I don't know, right? But when we get alone with the Lord, I can't help but to resonate with David's thoughts. What is man that you're mindful of him? What is it as your special creation? Yes, we see that in Genesis 1. As made in your image and likeness? Absolutely. But you talk about messing it all up on a grand scheme. Good gravy, and you think, God, why do you not turn away? Why do you not just leave me alone? I mean, in some instances, we would sit there and we'd say, I, I, I don't blame you if you would. And what the amazing thing about grace is, is he doesn't deal with us on our terms. He deals with us on his terms. And what I've found is that he is much more lenient and much more understanding than we will ever be. And sometimes that wrecks my world. Because how do you understand grace? It's difficult. It's difficult. And what we've seen so far, let's start in verse 3. Make a couple of observations because they really culminate in this section. If you're looking along at this, let me give you some structural things real quick, okay? Verses 3 through 6 deal with the Father, okay? Verses 7 through 12 deal with the Son. Verses 13 and 14 deal with the Spirit. And all of it flows out of this main umbrella overarching statement of that you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you believe that He's died for your sins and risen from the grave, you are in a location called in Christ. You can never be uprooted. You can never be evicted. You are always there. You are permanently there because of His doing, not yours. Somebody said one time, I don't remember who, if we could lose our salvation, we would. But I'm so thankful that we don't. And I'm so thankful that we haven't, but I guarantee it's not for us trying. It's because God is infinitely more gracious than my mistakes. So we see this here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, past tense, with every spiritual blessing. Nothing gets left out. You are complete in Him. 
Notice that it's in the heavenly places, so it's in the celestial realm. It's in the dimension of heaven, of where these things are perfected. We would say it this way, we are positionally perfected. As far as God is concerned, He sees us in His Son, in Christ, and because so, we are positionally perfect. You are perfect in Christ. Do you feel perfect in Christ? Maybe not. But if we start grasping the understanding that we are perfect because of Christ and that we are in Christ, feelings start to change real quick. Now, what does these these blessings look like? Let's seize what they do. Just as, in a way that he shows us this, he chose us in him. This left side kills me. In him. Before the foundation of the world, that's when he made the decision, so this is a timing thing. Stay there, line. For what reason? That we would be holy and blameless before him in love. That's his goal. Now we're going to talk about the questionable nature of this right here. It's important for us to look at. Killing me. He chose us is important, okay? But where were we when he chose us? We were in him. You had to hear the gospel as someone who is unregenerate, without life, a lost person. Respond to the gospel in faith. And at the moment that you respond, the Holy Spirit now causes you to be born from above. And in doing so, you now have new life. You have God's life residing in you, and it is guaranteed beginning to end. So now that you have life, you are now a prime candidate for amazing blessings because God has torn the roof off of who you are. You can now accelerate to bounds that were never known before. And the amazing thing is, is that we can be set apart and without stain, without wrinkle, without problem. Nothing's more frustrating than when you're folding a shirt and you realize when you double it over, For some reason, they got creased out. That not drive anybody else crazy? That drives me nuts. Because then I have to undo it and turn it out again and fold it over. You guys don't know what I'm talking about. The struggle is real. You know. Great. Jim, thank you. Kindred brother. We know. Okay, good. But the idea is that there's no fault in it at all. God can't find anything wrong. This is what he's chosen us unto. He's chosen us unto a situation where in our love for one another, he can't find anything wrong. You say, well, why does it say it that way? The reason why I believe the text is taken that way is because the idea of being chosen and elect for anything in the Bible is never to salvation. It's always to a purpose or a task. So what is the task of which he has chosen me unto so that I'm consistent with everything else that the scriptures tell me from Genesis to Revelation? It must be in love that has to be the focus. Now, if we're talking about why does God do what he does, what motivates him to be so gracious upon infinitely ill-deserving people? I have to say this. If you're someone who says no, I think the translators got this right. Remember, verse 3 through 14, it's a complete run-on sentence. There is no punctuation in the manuscript. 
So when people are translating this into English, they're trying to make the best sense that they can and put the punctuation where they see it needs to be. If it's the case where they're correct on this punctuation here, and it starts with that, then fine. Doctrinally speaking, scripturally speaking, there's nothing wrong with that. And it doesn't change the meaning of this, the fact that we've been called to be holy and blameless. Fine. We just don't understand the direct area in which we are to be holy and blameless. Maybe it's just speaking generally of our conduct. But if that is the case, then we can very much take the idea of in love and move it forward to this. In his love, he predestined us, personal inclusive pronoun, to adoption as sons. There's no problem with that because what does it tell you? It tells you that the motivation that he has forward is his love. Would anybody dispute that? Would anybody talk against that? I mean, think about it. We've said this before. Does God need us? No. God's plans are able to be accomplished apart from people if he should so desire. But the incredible thing about the idea of love is it is an expression of who God is. God is love, right? First John tells us that. But it's also, he has to be who he is. There's nothing hypocritical about God. And so if that is the case, the love is who he is flowing out in a desire of saying, I want them. That's a big deal. Because he doesn't need us. But his love is what pushes him to the point of saying, but I don't want to go without them. Well, how are they going to help you along? Well, actually, I I don't need them to get accomplished what I'm getting accomplished. I'm perfectly able to do that. But the key is, is that he doesn't want to bring it to culmination without us. He views us as indispensable because of his desire, not because of need. That's a whole different level. Practically speaking, I could do without Jay getting to the kingdom. Practically speaking, he could do without Jeremy getting to the kingdom. But as far as what causes God to move, Now think about it. What causes him to respond? What causes him to say, I'm going to get in there and do something about that? I'm going to give every signal possible. Why? Because I want them in the end. You know what that tells me? It tells me that God is in pursuit. It tells me that God is after me and you. It tells me those people that you walk away from a conversation you're completely discouraged by, almost on the verge of tears. Guess what? God wants them too. There's not a person on the face of the earth that's ever been born that God didn't want. There are no illegitimates in God's eyes. There are those children who choose to walk away and not have anything to do with them and not respond favorably to the gospel and guarantee you this, before your heart ever breaks in that situation, God's was already broken. His love is for people. His love has an affectionate object out of head of which it must be poured in. I mean, think about it. Would you put your child on the cross for no reason? What does he see? Number one, God is God over death. Satan doesn't have claim on that. He is God over death. 
So there's not a problem there. But there was no other way to get us. The rescue mission took sacrifice in order to complete. Or let's say it this way. Next time that we're having this self-esteem dilemma that's going on, recognize that you were worth the death of Christ. God decided that His best would be given for our worst. That's grace. And love can be seen as the motivator. Now again, let me restate. I wouldn't interpret it this way just because of what I see throughout the Scriptures of how the idea of election and choosing is used. But if you're someone who looks at this and says, you know what, in love, God predestined me and placed me as a son or daughter with all rights and privileges of which He seeks to heap an incredible inheritance upon me in coming into His kingdom. I can only rejoice in that. Because if love is what motivated him in that direction, the Bible speaks to that. The Bible speaks of that being something that causes God to get involved. And if that's the case, it must be pretty powerful. Notice that it's not because of our love he predestined. Everybody see that? We love him because he what? Because he first loved me. Oh, how I love Jesus. Why? Because He first. He loved me first. He was in line before me. Or what does Romans 5.8 uh, 8 say? God demonstrates His love in that while we were... You sure it doesn't say warming up to Him? That's probably the NIV. I don't know. Just kidding. Some of you are your NIV users. I love you. While we were sinners, Christ died. While we were rebellious, Christ died. While we were butting heads, Christ died. While we were disobedient and defiant and saying, God, leave me alone. I want nothing to do with you. Love pushes the death of Jesus. Are we starting to get it? Do we see the grand scope of God's plan for people? Man, it's huge. So notice, love, major motivator. He did that. But here's another interesting thing. He had to have a means of accomplishing it. Anytime I see through in my Bible, especially in relation to Jesus, you see that a lot. You can type that into literal words. You're going to find through Jesus or through the Lord Jesus or something like that all the time. I always draw an arrow. Why? Because it's got to go through a situation and Jesus is the main subject matter that's going on here. Now this is incredibly important. Jesus is the indispensable conduit by which grace comes because it can't come any other way. He has got to be intricately involved. Don't we read in John chapter 1? Where was he in creation? Indispensably involved. He had to be there. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. He is God. So there was never a time that God's going to be operating something of which the Son does not play an absolutely integral part in accomplishing whatever the Father may desire in that. I thought this was important to maybe think through. Three areas that make Jesus the conduit of divine grace. We need to think about what we know in Scripture in order to understand what does it mean, the fact that He places His sons through His Son. Why is that important? Number one, it's the fact that He's deity. I saw something the other day. I'm not a social media person much, but I do do Twitter, okay? And I was on there rolling through. And this lady who has a PhD in Jewish study, she said, why is American Christians so infatuated with Jesus? It's not like he's God or anything. 
You know what I did? I opened literal word and I hit reply. (laughs) And man, I started posting scripture. Just posting it. You know, believe the Bible or not, it's pretty evident. Jesus claimed to be nothing less than God. He is absolute deity. Now here's what's incredible about that. In order for you and I to be accepted before the Father, there are requirements that have to be met. The biggest thing, the biggest daunting, I don't know, wall of ice that we would see in front of us there that we can't overcome is the fact that God is righteous. And we are acutely aware that we're not. And so the situation can only be resolved in having a righteousness like His. It can't happen any other way. There's got to be a meeting that is equal. Highly exalted, yes, but it's got to be equal to His. If Jesus' righteousness is greater than God's, then God's not God, Jesus is. That's a problem. If it's less than that, then it doesn't get the job done and it's insufficient. That's often the gospel that gets preached today. Well, Jesus did his part. Now you stop sinning so that God will accept you. That's a dangerous ground to be on. I'm not a savior. I can't do that. But if Jesus is God, as the scriptures claim that he is, then that means that whatever righteousness that Jesus has is the righteousness of the Father, and therefore it meets on lofty but equal ground. If that's the case, when you believe in him, there's a transference that takes place. Why? Our sins have been placed upon him and he has died on the altar of the cross. But what he does at the moment that we believe is called imputation. He imputes his righteousness to our account. And anytime that God looks at us, he sees an exploding bank account of righteousness for you and for me. How cool is that? And God says, I accept that. Why? Because it's a righteousness just like mine. Because it is mine. What does that tell you? Jesus Christ is God. His deity is an indispensable element. How about the next one? The cross. How does this righteousness become available? Well, get this. Salvation is by works. You heard that correctly. Salvation is by work. But to think that you and I could work in order to meet the requirement of salvation is insane. We think much more of ourselves than we ought to. So the work that is demanded is perfect payment for massive debt. Massive debt. Has everybody ever gotten freaked out that your sins aren't just committed outside your body, but you got inside sins too? That ever weirds you out? You ever found yourself, this is just me usually, you ever find yourself in a situation where you, you were doing work or whatever, talking, talking to somebody or whatever, and all of a sudden you go like this. Do you ever do that? Happens to me all the time. And when I find out, good grief, there's, there's something creeping up on me, something that I'm thinking, and what snaps me out of it is I'm shocked that it got in my brain somehow. And I think, good grief. What a sinful fool I am. What in the world was I thinking? Let me tell you this real quick. I wasn't going to tell you this. I'll tell you this. (laughs) I had a dream last night. It's the first time I ever dreamed about aliens. Just go with me. It fits in the sermon, I promise. (laughs) And it's as vivid as can be. 
I mean, all of these ships are like coming down and there's like lasers, you know, hitting the ground and all this dirt's flying everywhere and all this stuff. And for some reason, I'm in, a, in an apartment complex that has a garage underneath it, okay? And next thing I know, I'm watching all this stuff happen out a window and I feel a smack on my shoulder and I look over and it's Jerry in my dream. <laughs> and Jerry says, Jeremy, we got to get out of here. So we jump in my car and I'm driving and I pull out and for some reason I go into a field and there's people camping in the field and I just run over a girl to save myself. And I had trouble sleeping the rest of the night because I'm sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, I killed a girl to save myself. What's wrong with me? You know? And I picture Jeremy, Jerry saying like, well, she's in the way. It had to happen, you know? <laughs> Something like that. It was a necessary casualty. We had to get to safety. I don't know if that's because he was in the passenger seat or what, but, you know. But I'm freaking out about this dream, and it's like keeping me up. Every time I'm waking up, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, did I, re did I really run over a girl? That's how vivid it was. And then I'm sitting here thinking, what kind of evil, messed up person inside do I have to be to be thinking that kind of stuff? I fall so short. I fall so short of anything that God would ever ask of me. Good grief, Jesus has done incredible work on the cross to even get beyond my alien-infested dream of running over people. What in the world leads a person to think like that? Boy, it's crazy. Please don't think less of me. I got problems like everybody else. Jesus supplies the necessary work. What is the demand of the Father? Jesus meets the demand. Jesus meets the demand at great personal expense, but he turns around and heaps benefits on us for that. Well, what work do I need to bring to the table? Nothing. That's what makes it by grace. And if we've ever been told that we have to bring something to the table in order to be accepted by God, we're saying that Christ does a terrible job in meeting the Father's demands. Let's not tread on that ground. The last thing is the resurrection. We're in Christ, yes? That's what we've been saying. Our location is in Christ. Are we in a dead Christ or a living Christ? We're in a living Christ. Do you realize that no other belief system in the entire world has that claim? Everybody's always telling you about the pillars that you need to go to and the trek that you need to take and the way that you need to pray and how certain things ought to be set up on your table and how you need to come and do this sign and say this word and learn this vocabulary. Do you realize that Jesus just says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's what he says. Why? Because there's nothing for us to do. And because he lives, he is able to take us and place us within himself. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will be like him. Christ is our life. Colossians 3, 4 tells us that. So what are the things that through Jesus matter? Number one, he's God. Number two, he met the necessary work for salvation to be accomplished. Number three, he lives now for you and I to stand in and actually able to hold our chins up before a holy God and just say, thank you for placing me in a place of righteousness where a living Savior wants to use me and work through me every day to live a life I could have never lived before. That's incredible. That's incredible. So notice this. Wait, let's go back here. Where are we at? Boom. I forgot to copy this slide. Now notice this. He does this through Jesus Christ. So we talked about the work involved. Okay? Two, 
himself. Everybody see that? There's an end of which that needs to meet. It goes through the channel of Jesus, but it meets somewhere. There's a goal out ahead to himself. God made sure that no doubt would linger about the fact that he wanted you and me. So he does this work through his son and say, if you want to know where this meets, it meets in a person of himself. It's incredibly personal. It's God saying, I'm not just up here above the sky looking over, seeing everything bad you guys are doing. I didn't just create things and stick a key in there and wind it up and let you guys go hopping along until you run out of steam. That's not the God of the Bible. God is intimately involved, personally involved. Now look at this. Everybody see according to? This is actually a measurement. You're going to bake something, you've got to get those measuring cups out. Jesus is putting together a formula of grace, and he's got some measuring cups out. He makes sure that his son is involved. He makes sure that the goal is in mind right here. But it's according to something. How do we measure this out so that it comes out just right? Very interesting to see here. Notice that it has to be the kind intention. Some of your translations say purpose. God's intentions towards you are kind. Let me say it in a negative way. God's not mad at you. God is not upset with you. God is not standing there with a the bat waiting for you to get out of line. That's not his goal. If his goal is to take those who are in Christ and elevate them with incredible blessings that they lack nothing, then all of his intentions are kind. His purposes towards us are nothing but good. In doing so, notice that it's according to his, his will. His reasons are his own. It's his prerogative in how he desires to do that. His desire to be benevolent toward you and I, it's what God wants. Everybody see that? Can God have anything? Yes. He's the creator of all. All worship and glory are due to him. Everything should be in devotion to him. But guess what? It's what God wants that really screams out of here that motivates him to get what he wants and it is his will to be kind in all of his intentions to us in placing us as sons and giving us a grand opportunity to be holy and blameless in our love that's amazing because now what we have is we didn't just have a couple of yummy pancakes now we're putting butter and syrup on top of all this stuff bacon bacon on your pancakes why not bacon should go on everything it's the kind intention of his will now, let me scoot through these real quick because I messed up how I was framing it. Now, watch where this goes. What is the goal that this comes out of? Here's the goal. To the praise, you know what that is? It's worship. We need to say something. Because of what he's done and heaping mounts and mounts of grace and every spiritual blessing, and he's showing this by his personal involvement at every level. Something should happen. We should respond. If he's throwing it, we should be throwing it back. In fact, isn't this how this started? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes? 
who blessed us with every spirit. What does it mean to bless God? Well, I hope that he has a good life and that he's taken care of. And he said, no, remember, it's not like that. It's giving thanks to him and praise to him and recognizing him for who he is in all of these things. It's being enraptured with him. In fact, I got to change my pages because I've moved on here. Worship is the desire of a perfect God leading his subjects in a perfect way. Worship is an outspring of his desire. Think about this real quick. Does God need to be worshiped? He doesn't need that. In fact, if we recall correctly in John 17, when Jesus is in the garden praying by himself, John captures something that's very interesting there. Lord, I pray that you'd show them the glory as I had with you before the foundation of the world. You know what that tells me? It tells me that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit have the most excellent worship service that ever went on before any of us were ever even on the timeline. So worship is not something that he needs. But again, what motivates God? Look at this. It's what he wants. Why? It's not because he needs it. It's not, you know, God's feeling down today. So somebody needs to build him up and, oh, praise you, Jesus. Oh, I'm feeling a little bit better now. Keep it going. Keep it going. It's not like that. How is it with God? God is letting us know that the best way that we could respond to the outpouring of his grace is to give him worship. He's leading us in the most perfect way of response that we could ever come up with. Think about it for a second. How do you think and praise God for what he's done for you? This is a reason why we're spending so much time focusing on the manifold blessings that are found in Christ. Is because what, what needs to happen is, is we need to erupt in worship for him. And that's what he says. It needs to be to the praise of the glory. So we're dealing with the idea of glorification here. I know that's a big $5 word, but that's what we're dealing with. The glory, the brilliance, the shining, the ah, of his what? Grace. Undeserved favor. Grace has been so misunderstood. In fact, what I'm seeing over the past 50 to 70 years in church trends are the exaltation of God's sovereignty over His grace. And what I've realized, what I think is the case here, is the fact that the reason why sovereignty is promoted in such wonky and crazy ways that are not part and parcel of who God is is because the undermining of grace has taken place. And if you undermine grace, you can't understand sovereignly, uh, sovereignty properly. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example here. This is by Lewis Sperry Chafer. If you ever get the chance to get his book on grace, it's awesome. You will read it slow because you can't help but to. It is thick. You'll probably put on some waders and then put on your glasses and open the book. Okay? It's deep. But here's something that he says here that blows people's minds. Grace speaks of a gift, not a barter or trade, however unequal. It is pure kindness, not the fulfilling of an obligation. An act in order to be gracious must stand disassociated and alone. Disassociated and alone. Get that. Divine salvation is therefore the kindness of God towards sinners. It's not less than it would have been had they sinned less. And it's not more than it would have been had they sinned more. It is wholly unrelated to every question of human merit. 
In other words, your behavior and your performance has nothing to do at all with the fact that God is gracious. Hey, well, I was really sinful, so now that I'm coming to my senses, he's more gracious to us. No, he's always been that gracious. You're just appreciating it more because of the hole you dug. The consequences cause us to seek the light more. This is why people who's like, well, I've been saved since I was four. I don't really have this amazing, riveting, mind-blowing testimony story. Guess what? It's still full of grace. It's not any more weighty than the other person who was a drug addict and came out of that, who had this shambled marriage and came out of that. Whatever. We, sometimes we try to one-up each other on sin stories. That doesn't magnify God's grace. What magnifies God's grace is the fact that he's demonstrated it to all. And all were undeserving. So it has nothing on the field about whether they deserved it or they didn't deserve it. None of that. It's wholly unrelated to every question of human merit. Grace is neither treating a person as he deserves nor treating a person better than he deserves. It is treating a person graciously without the slightest reference to his deserts. In other words, it's grace because it's grace. It stops taking the person into consideration about, well, how much grace should we give here? Should we give them grace at all? No, stop. Grace is infinite love expressing itself in infinite goodness. God isn't just a God of grace. He is grace. Grace is a person. And grace projects itself forward regardless of the deservedness or undeservedness of a person. Why? Because it's intrinsic to who they are, not what the need is at the particular time. Don't we walk into situations, how can I help? How can I help here? What do you need? How can I do this? That's not God. You know what God does? Grace! God shows up in whatever questions that we're asking at any given time. He just puts forward the person of his son and says, here's your answer. Because that is the object of which His grace is transmitted to us. God always answers us in His Son. So it's to the praise of His glorious grace. God, we deserve none of this. God says, I know. It's not necessarily that He did it because of us. It's because it is who He is and He wanted us and it was the means of getting us. We're so undeserving of that. Yes, you are. Guess what? God still wanted you. God still loved you. God still had to have you. And so he made the way possible for us to come to him. Since we could not go to him, he came to us. Let's finish this up. So notice this, his grace. Very interesting, because this is the Greek word. Paris means gift. Which he freely bestowed. I love this. If you've got an ESV, boy, they really butchered it here, okay? They really did a bad job on it. They've got something like blessing in there, okay? There's a theological word for that type of translating. It's called, no, okay? Cheratuo is the name, which is a derivative of this, and it's where we get our English word, charity. Now, here's what's interesting. God is saying that the gift of grace has been freely given to you. Isn't that what a gift is? Something that's freely given with no expectation in return? Is Paul being unnecessarily redundant here? I don't think so. I think what he's actually doing is he's actually driving home the point here on his bullseye that he wants to get. 
I think that's exactly what's happening. He wants you to understand that grace is so ridiculously free that when you think that you've exhausted the boundaries or the realms of what he could possibly accomplish on your and my behalf in the Lord Jesus, he's saying, no, no, it goes further. It goes further. It goes further. And just because my finite mind and heart wants to put limitations on it, and usually because I like to control it, I like to try to figure it out. I want to know exactly how it's going to work. You know, because I'm very type A on those types of situations. What I actually find out is I can't tame grace. I can't reel it in. I can't put boundaries on it. It's a floodgate that overflows whatever dam I'm trying to establish. Because regardless of how far you and I may sin, regardless if we fall into periods of unbelief, regardless if we have depression that is unbearable at some point where we don't even want to get out of bed, recognize that God's grace goes freely and further than whatever boundary we have set upon ourselves in all of our inadequacy. That's what it's getting at. He wants us to understand that, yes, we worship Him because of His glorious grace, but understand the fact that it was freely bestowed. Did it cost God something to offer this grace? Yes, it does. But how do you get it? Freely. No strings attached. It truly is a conversation where no strings are attached. You say, that's too easy. You sure? Because I'm asking you to believe and a Savior that you've never seen, who paid a price that you don't really fully understand the ramifications that you have, so that He will take you to a place that you've never been. I don't think it's that easy. Is it simple to be saved? Absolutely. What does it take? Believing in Jesus. What's that? A confident conviction that He's died for your sins and risen from the grave. That's easy. But is it simple to think through those things? I've never seen them. If you've ever gotten medication from a doctor... You don't know everything about that doctor. He could be crooked. But what's he do? You have an ill. He writes your prescription. You can't read it, no matter what you try, right? So you don't know. You're hoping the pharmacist can read it, right? And so they end up putting the things together in little capsules. They drop it in there, and they actually give you ways of which to take it so many a day, so often a time. You don't know what's in those little capsules. What do we do? We go home and go, man, I can't wait to feel better. Ever realize that? Sorry, Roxanne. But you ever realize that? <laughs> Is that faith or what? Is that trusting that we're going to have some sort of solution out of that situation? Notice it's no different with that. It costs God an enormous amount to make these infinite blessings available to us. And all He says is, would you please receive them? And if you want to know how to respond, great, worship. Don't try to work for them. Don't try to earn what I'm already freely given you. Worship. Freely bestowed on us. Love it. Why? Paul too. Me and Paul. Yay. Look what it says. In, this is the only time that this description of Jesus is ever used outside of the Gospels. In the Beloved. In other words, in the one that God loves entirely is where he finds his kids that he loves entirely. Part and parcel with our brother Jesus Christ. These are the things that motivate God. What are some things that we need to pull from this? Well, number one, the Father's motivated to grant those in Christ with every spiritual blessing 
due to his love and his kind will. That's why he does it. It's not about what we deserve or don't deserve. It's not that Zach has every spiritual blessing and I've got three quarters of spiritual blessings. It's not how it works. He's lavished this on all of them. That's what makes Paul being included so important. The next one, only Jesus Christ is the indispensable element to impart these glorious gifts to the saints. It's all about Him. It's all about Him being the means by which God meets us. The life of God and the love of God meet us in the cross. That's exactly what He wants to do there. Number three, we should worship God for His glorious grace. But the question is, is that why you praise Him? Is that why you worship Him? Is that what moves your heart towards Him? It should be. But is that what our minds are resting in, soaking in, is the fact of His grace? The last one, grace is free to the saint, but it was costly to the Father. This is why we look at Him and we say, Lord, thank You. Thank You. Anybody ever given you a, a, a gift and you're like, good grief, I can't, I can't believe this. And what do you say? Would you like a flash drive instead? Wouldn't that be insulting? It would be insulting to the giver. Why did they give it? Because they wanted to be gracious. Did it cost them a lot? Yeah, it probably did. But the reason why they wanted to do it is because they wanted the opportunity to put you in a better position than what you would have had without them. That's grace. So we should praise the Father for His grace. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, You are gracious. We can't say it enough. I pray God we never get sick of it but we would think through all of these elements that you put forward. This incredible doxology that just gives you praise and worship. It's not just what you've done, it's how you've done it. It's who you are that illuminates this grace for us. If we're trying to think about this apart from your involvement, grace never makes any earthly sense at all. It never does. And the fact that you are so supreme and yet are so gracious. If you didn't tell us yourself, that would seem very very contradictory. So Father, thank You for being good. And I pray, God, that our hearts are full this morning. Just pondering upon Your grace. And I pray, God, we would worship You out of respect to that. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.